0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of March 2018 and this is episode number 53. In this podcast, I interview author and historian Louise Heron about her 2016 book published by Pen and Sword on nannies in the Great War. I spoke to Louise from her home in Deepest Wiltshire. Hi Louise, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you begin by giving us a background on how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Okay, yes Tom, I can. What I can't give you is a specific date when the fascination started because it seems to have been there forever. What I can say is academically it became very interesting when I was at university um, as an undergrad. I was studying the Scottish radical tradition at St Andrews and it was by the time we got into the Labour working man in the early 20th century that suddenly my ears pricked up and this this was me and in some respects it related to family life my grandfather and great-grandfather and I knew always in the background as well, there was a guy called Blind Uncle Lou, Louie Heron, um, one of a couple. And I knew that he'd been blinded in the Great War, but that was it. And we visited so rarely that I never, ever had a chance to speak to him. And he was so old. But there, there's always been this niggling thing in the background. And the fascination grew from these tiny nuggets. It just grew from there. So by the time I found the letters... And the quarterly magazines at what is now Norland College, but back in the Great War was known as the Norland Institute. It was very easy to go, oh, right, this is different. And this is something we don't know about.
0: So, I mean, coming on to that, why did you write a book all about nannies and the Great War? We can come on to the Norland Institute in a minute.
1: Um, why? Because because I'd been, I'd been filming with Norland College for about a year, making a, basically a parenting and childcare series for Discovery. And in the course of making that series, the then principal, Thurza Ashelford, said to me, We've got some fascinating history. Come and have a look. And there was this enormous Ottoman chest outside their big conference room. And I was being polite, I must admit, because my series didn't allow for backstory of that depth. And I sat there and thought, OK, I'm just going to have to show willing and have a look in this big Ottoman chest knowing full well that I might not find anything and I just spend twenty minutes, half an hour, and then go, thank you so much. That was lovely. So what I did was the one thing I knew I knew something about historically was the Great War. And when I realized that there were these quarterlies, big leather bound quarterlies in this chest, I thought, right, fine. Pick the one from nineteen ten to nineteen fourteen. Let's have a look. Let's have a look at the autumn one for nineteen fourteen and see what there is. And I I must admit I struck gold because I came across letters that the nannies had sent back to college. And it was explaining their exploits in the first months of the Great War. And I hadn't read anything
0: like it before. So, okay, so what was a Norland Institute that that has become today Norland College?
1: The Norland Institute started in 1892, September the 25th, 1892. They opened their doors in what is now the Ladbroke Grove, Notting Hill Gate area of London, um, it was the brainchild of Emily Ward. Emily was a primary school teacher, had gone on to be a headmistress. She was avant-garde, though. Um, she was very much into the verbal, um ac- way of teaching young children, the Austrian-German um, academician. And she thought this was the best way to teach small children. However, she was a m- woman of her time, late Victorian woman, and she was middle class. She had just recently married a merchant businessman who'd returned from China where all his career had been there and he'd come home. He was obviously a wealthy man. She was wealthy in her own right. I mean, she came from a very middle class family in her own right. But put the two of them together with his funding to back her. that That extra confidence that comes from being a married woman in the late Victorian period, and by now she's in her very early 40s, The business idea took off and the idea was to teach nannies known as children's nurses in that period, train them because up until now, They hadn't been trained. The British royal family had been existing with, if you imagine the size of Queen Victoria's family and how many children she had and therefore how many grandchildren they were knocking about. They had relied on servants who had been the nursery maid, who then goes on to be the nursery nurse because she learns a bit beyond filling the coal scuttle and feeding the children. She learns how to help and dress the children, wash them. Then she goes on to learn how to play with them and eventually takes over as head nurse. And this is how all the wealthy families of the UK had been dealing with their childcare needs until Emily Ward comes on the scene. And Emily says, right, the upper and middle classes of the the British Empire need trained young women to bring up their children. We can't have the working classes, the uneducated working classes doing this for us any longer. She basically sees a niche in the market, and she fills it. Now, when she starts out, nobody quite knows whether it's going to work because she hasn't got any clients. She's got a building that she's going to open the institute in, one of her proteges that she'd trained um Isabel Sharman, the first principal of the Norland Institute, she trained her as a primary school teacher and they oh, the two women, despite the the age gap, obviously get on very, very well. they've got the same mindset and Isabel joins Emily and they open their doors and they start out with four students, and the course is going to take nine months but the i mean the effort the two women go to, they have drawing room meetings where they invite the great and the good of London to come to these drawing room meetings and sign up. And say, yes, when you, when the first batch are trained, we'll have them. And it's word of mouth. Um, she was very clear that it would be too grubby to advertise. So it's all word of mouth. Um, but from day one, she is very keen to hook a royal. It takes a while. And when she first manages to do so, it's European royalty. It's not British royalty. But it, it kicks off. And literally within two years, they have an intake twice a year, which begins to swirl numbers. And reputation travels fast. They are obviously being well trained. It's something different. And it's something that the market actually suddenly wakes up and goes, We need these young women.
0: So what was your source material for, for the book?
1: Primarily, it was the quarterly magazines, which in this period, probably up until about the 1930s, are actually quite full. They're letters back and forth between nannies and the principal and the foundress, Emily. They're letters between themselves. Now, admittedly, they're having to wait three months before they can get a reply that's printed. But they are... They're knocking backwards and forwards in letters about childcare and childcare practice, um, how to deal with difficult employers or good employers, how to gain recognition in the household because they are truly a cut above the servants but they're not quite part of the family. And a lot of them find that quite a tricky niche to fill. Um, So it's letters going backwards and forwards like that. So the letters are about them, about their exploits. Obviously the thing that hooked me was their exploits in the Great War. And they trickle through the quarterlies for the whole period, right up until January 19. There were other bits and pieces of paperwork. Um, Isabel Sharman's diaries were in the archive. There's letters from Emily Ward to various principals throughout the period. Um, although Isabel does Isabel sadly dies in January 17, but then there's a it's very difficult to fill her shoes, so then there's a flurry of smaller principles during this shorter period. And after that, because one of my main characters, Kate Fox, the royalist of royal nannies, she works for the Greek royal family. And I tracked down using another book and its um, footnotes, I managed to track down her letters at the Royal Archive at Windsor. And spent three chilly days um, in the castle there, looking at the archive. So her letters—they weren't—they were the—they were Princess Nicholas of Greece's letters to her. I believe Kate Fox's letters are lost. I every now and then, when I get a spare hour, I have a little pot around on the internet from various archives, seeing if I can find them. But I
0: do think they're lost. So before we talk about exactly what nannies did do in the war, what type of woman sought training at the institute?
1: Uh, I think the women who came to the Norland Institute in this period thought they were something special. I can't not say that. Despite the fact I don't know these women, obviously I would never have met them. They are women who think that having special training will get them a career. So I would say they were independent minded. Otherwise, they would have gone the route of most other women of the period, found a husband and disappeared into domesticity. So they think there's something a bit different. They obviously have a love of children. That is palpable in all their letters. There's not a single nanny there who's doing it for the lifestyle. They are all doing it because they love children. Some of them are middle class themselves. Some of them are, for want of, I know we can't justify this as historians, but some of them are upper working class. Um, and that's obvious from the registers when they enter the Institute that their father's occupation is put down. So we've got a range of gentlemen farmers, dairy farmers, just your bog standard farmer. I've got grocer in Plaistow in East London, um, a couple of bankers, a couple of solicitors, import export merchants that kind of thing there's nobody there who who is a laborer or who is a tradesman they're all slightly above that if not significantly above that one of the very very early trainees she wasn't titled but she obviously was something quite special and she had a chaperone walk her to the institute every morning and collect her and take her back to the family home every evening. She was obviously so special that she wasn't allowed to walk the streets of London on the companies. But then again, how a lot of women in that period had chaperones, even if it was an aunt or an older sister. But to actually think that she was going to be able to work in somebody else's household as a children's nurse, but in the course of her training, couldn't be allowed out of the sight of a chaperone the, 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 there's a paradox in that, that the family were paying for the training, but they could probably see her more as marriage material, and therefore she had to remain unsullied
0: by the streets of London. So so when a person graduated from the Northern Institute, who did they work for?
1: In the first instance, these nannies were working for well-heeled London families. You can see from the addresses, it's SW1, it's West1, It's those kinds of things. Um, Norland are extremely discreet, but addresses are what we would now see as Chelsea, Kensington, Mayfair, Manchester Square, Gloucester Square, that kind of thing. Um, If they're outside of London, it's vicars, uh, solicitors, doctors, not much else apart from that. People who are going to be able to afford them when they leave Norland, it's upwards of £25 a year salary plus all their board and lodging. And it's not just that. They are asking for money for children's entertainment, for the children's clothes. They know that the children need to be well-dressed because they're representing the family. So nobody goes out with a hole in their boots or a grubby frock on. Um, So they're incredibly well turned out. That costs... So there's more than just the cost of paying a Norlander and keeping her in food and lodging. There's the cost of maintaining the child the way the Norlander wants the child kept.
0: So coming to the Great War, now all these nannies were in various uh, homes, I assume, around um, the UK and, and, and the world. So what, what what happened to some of them during the Great War? All
1: right. Well, yes, by the time we get to August 1914, Norlanders are global. There's a sprinkling of them pretty much everywhere mainly in the british colonies um, but some of them have managed to get to java and working for a dutch family that kind of thing the most of those obviously have got the most fascinating stories of those who are in europe and because of the british royal family's close links to the german royal family a lot of them are working for german royalty and when we get to the opening of the war they are obviously on the wrong side of the fence and they're given the decision to make for themselves, largely for themselves, you can stay. I've got one nanny, um, Kathleen Wonstel, who is working for a German diplomat in Vienna. And she decides to stay. And she stays holed up in the German embassy in Vienna for the entire four years. And they guarantee her safety. But she never leaves the garden of that embassy, which is a remarkable thing to do for four years. Others... Are told, we'll try to keep you safe, but equally we'll pay for passage home. And the majority of them say, we're off, we're going. So they are, but they they come home in dribs and drabs. This is the peculiar thing. Those who are in France obviously can stay a bit longer, um, unless they're right over where the the Western Front is. I've got one young lady who's in Belgium, she's in Antwerp, and she, she was fascinating to me because she had only finished her training at Easter 1914. Her first job is with a Belgian doctor in Antwerp. And as the Germans advance through Belgium, Gladys has got a front row seat. She's there at the bombardment of Antwerp. Um, She escapes with the family, but they escape into the refugee camps in Holland. So she goes from a well-heeled family home looking after just one little boy um, to living in a tent with the squalor that goes with being refugees. I have a couple of French girls, uh, girls sorry, working in France, who stay, but because the women of the family have become voluntary aid detachment, they're um, you know, auxiliary nurses, their nannies do that as well. So they're looking after the children and on their days off, they're going to help nurse the beginnings of you know the casualty clearing stations and the big hospitals that are forming back on the North French coast. So they're involved in that way, but they stay, but they stay sufficiently far back from the front line. Kate Fox, Kate Fox, who had um, scuppered her career somewhat with the Greek royals just before the war. She was summarily dismissed and it took her quite a while to figure out what had happened. And it was all gossip and hearsay. But basically, she would got a bit too big for her boots. She'd said something out of turn and the royal personage had heard. And there was also evidence in a written letter. Uh, it, It was damning. So Kate was sent packing. But Kate has got very used to working with royalty. So the normal London family that Norlanders by this period are working with possibly isn't good enough for Kate any longer. It's got to be a royal or nothing. So she's back in Germany. And she's quite far south in Germany when war breaks out. Her family say, they're titled family, and they say, we'll look after you. They try that for a couple of weeks, but by October, they are running for the border with Holland. There's a Greek doctor. It sounds a bit like a Monty Python sketch. There is a Greek doctor attached to the family somehow, something I couldn't get to the bottom of. There are two ladies staying with the family. There's a small child. They all get in a vehicle that is driven by a German chauffeur, and they begin to head north up the country heading for the border. They have a couple of hairy escapades where I can't imagine Kate keeping her trap shut. So this terribly cut glass English accent, and I must admit that's what I imagine she has, booming out, you know, young man, out of my way, do you know I'm a Norland nanny, Um, can't have gone down terribly well. So she's at one point told by the Greek doctor, button it, and by the way, give me all your papers that are in English because we're going to have to try and wing this. And they do, they manage to get out via Holland, And she arrives back in the UK. They are quite hairy stories, some of them. Most of them obviously they are coming home by train. Um, I've got one lady whose luggage is lost and she's an Edwardian young woman of her time. She's all elbows and handbags and she manages to fight her way through the crowds because she can see her boxes and the German soldiers just stand aside for her because they think the uniform is a military nurse. And because she's got such authority, off she goes, she gets her luggage and she comes back. Doesn't speak a word of German, um, but she's managed to get her own way simply through elbows at the ready and a very smart, starched pinafore. And that does the trick. And did they do any social work? Yes, they did. On the Western Front, I've got one lady who she's a Quaker and she goes out to the refugee camps very early on in Holland. And she's working there, working with the young women, little girls, so very much within her remit as a children's nurse. And she's caring for them, daily activities, trying, just trying to keep their pecker up, basically, um, and help to give them some skills. She's teaching them to sew, knit, that kind of thing. Back home in the UK, quite from the very early days, Norland is involved in charitable works, first in Acton, out to the west of London, where the big laundries are in London at that period, setting up a creche that they put their own children's nurses into as matron. And they raised the funds to pay her. Later on during the war, they managed to open a similar creche in Bethnal Green in the East End. They populate that with their own people as well. It's obviously a really tough job. One of the first matrons at the Bethnal Green creche goes down with typhoid. And she has to take a couple of years off. And then they're advertising, you see it in the quarterlies, they're advertising for a new matron at the Norland Nurses Mission is what it's called. And they find someone and she goes in, but she only does 18 months and she's gone down with something awful. It's an indictment of the state of health of the working classes in those areas at the period. Um, that the middle-class nannies who are going in to look after them have never been exposed to, and they succumb very, very quickly. But these are things that those people are living with daily. By the end of the war, Norland's their subscriptions to the Norland Nurses Mission Fund can't support both creches, and they decide that the Acton creche is doing well enough um, with the little bit of local council help that it gets. So they put all of their resources into Bethnal Green. And Bethnal Green
0: keeps going well into the 20s. And is there any, any indication of what the nannies thought about the war?
1: Um, yes, there is. And they're of divided opinion. You've got to understand that these peop- these women are opinionated. They are from the middle classes, largely. They have been educated. And much as it's not of the period for women necessarily to speak their minds, and also these women have been trained to be Relatively quiet about their employer's house. So they're not spiky, opinionated women. But when it comes to the letters they have published within the quarterly, there are two camps. There is the natural divide. It was the Germans that started it all, and they have opinions on that and how evil the Kaiser has been. That comes through quite clearly, um, particularly from one nanny, Kate, who's living on the eastern seaboard of the USA. And she's so disconnected from what's going on in Europe. She's been out there a few years. But she is staunchly, it's the Germans fault. And that you know that's what we read. And that's what we hear. And that, that's exactly the case. There's no level of criticism. She can't see beyond what the newspapers report. Sicily, Nurse Sicily Coles is a bit different. Sicily is a little bit older. I feel, I felt, and I did write it. Sicily, I think is the, the beginning of socialism in the middle classes in England. (laughs) There's a level of almost that internationalism that goes with it as well. But for her, it's very much in the nursery. She's teaching her children not to hate the German children. Just because they're German, this is about the adults. It's not about the children. And when this is all over, you'll be able to go backwards and forwards again to Germany the way your, your parents did as children. So she's very much into we don't pray at night for... God bless the king and queen. And could somebody shoot the Kaiser? They are praying for the good of the German people as well in her nursery. And she's desperately trying to bring her children up with a vision for what comes after the war, that we have to be peaceable with with one another. But yes, there is a strong element of, yes, the Germans started it. The British had no participation in that. We just went to the defense of the rest of the world as a good imperial power does. And they're, they're no more discerning than that. But there are occasions like with Sicily where there there are moments, moments where somebody says something, you think, ah, you are beginning to think about this. But that isn't apparent at the beginning of the war, that once the war has ground on for a couple of years, it's only come late 16, early 17 that those opinions start to come through, that actually we ought to be thinking about this. This has got to stop soon.
0: Finally, Louise, where can people get your book?
1: Um, Publisher. They'd always like to have you buy direct from them. So that's Pen and Sword Books, obviously on Amazon. And uh, it's pretty much any bookshop around the country.
0: Louise, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you very much, Tom.